Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Stewart, the Associate Professor of English at Tokyo University of Science. Dr. Stewart, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm, I'm doing quite well. I, w- I was actually thinking about uh, you the other day because mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a professor of mine um, at Macquarie who, mm-hmm. who, who told me, you know, if you ever have any questions or if you ever need anything, just let me know. And I, I told her that's a dangerous thing to say because there's there's a guy I know named Jeff who did the same thing, and I, I think he's getting sick of me by now. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> I was looking back at our email thread that started in 2017, and I just got a bit I got a little bit embarrassed to be honest. <laughs> no, I mean I'm really happy to help people when they're coming up because I used to have the same job you did, and I know what it's like when you first start as a lecturer. And you're starting a PhD program, so yeah, always happy to help. But I remember vividly, you, you, I, I asked you a few questions, and you said seriously, if you have any question, just let me know. Um, but I, well, I, if you leave uh, the university, I mean that that's got to be uh, a clear that, signal. It's got to expire, right, at some point. <laughs> no, no, not at all. The reason I emphasize that is because people are usually much too self-conscious about it, and they go, "I can't ask this guy another question." But you know, the more you need to ask me, the more I want you to ask, right? Well, I, I do, I do really appreciate that, and that's very generous of you. I'm just wondering when, when do I, when do I push it too far? So, thank you for coming on the podcast. <laughs> well, when you show up at my house in the middle of the night, we can draw a line there. But you know, an email once in a while is really no problem. Okay. Um, all right. So, yeah, as you mentioned, we we work together at Kusandai, uh, and, and now you're at Tokyo University of Science. So, mm-hmm. congratulations, congratulations on that. Uh, thank you. And today's article is predicting L2 reading proficiency with modalities of vocabulary knowledge, a bootstrapping approach. And this was published this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when did you submit it? Oh, let me think. I believe it was probably late 2018 when I was still at Kusandai. And you wrote this with... McLean and Batty. Um, these are your now. I've 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 seen a paper that you wrote with McLean, mm-hmm. and so how do you how do you know these two gentlemen? I know Stuart through the vocabulary the Jaltz uh, vocabulary special interest group, which is where I met a lot of my current collaborators. Okay, so that was actually founded at the university you're at now by a number of people there. Oh wow! And we would hold uh, symposiums at Kusandai, and we would invite up-and-coming people from around the country or outside of the country if we could afford them or if they could make it down um, for a symposium on a specific topic. And then we would publish their papers. And that became a great way to meet people. So I think Stuart had got a grant from JALT uh, to study vocabulary size tests, and we invited him down. And, you know, after the symposium, we'd get together and talk about these things and start launching our own projects. And so if you look at a a lot of my papers and a lot of his papers, you can see a lot of intermingling of JALT types working together on these issues. Now, this this paper was um, supported by a grant from Kakenhi. Yes, I believe it was on Stewart's end. On Stewart's, okay. If you'd like, I can give you the backstory on it. Um, Sure. I wrote a paper, I think you mentioned it to me before we started recording, about guessing effects in the vocabulary size test about six years ago now in language assessment quarterly. And then in 2016, there was a major uh, vocabulary uh, conference, L2 vocabulary conference in Tokyo. And myself and Tim Steckel and other of my frequent uh, co-authors, we did a paper where we talked about the construct relevance of um, the type of vocabulary knowledge that the vocabulary size test tests. So with most of those tests, you'll have an English word, and then you'll have four definitions, and you select the correct definition, right? Mm-hmm. So what we were saying is when you're reading a book, you know, if you see a word you don't know, you, it's not who wants to be a millionaire. You don't have four options sort of hovering above the, the text that you can choose from, right? Mm-hmm. And really the only time in life we use that um, is when we're doing a, you know, a multiple choice test for school or what have you. So we were saying that the most construct relevant, um, test of, uh, you know, written receptive vocabulary knowledge is recall where you see the word and you have to provide the definition. 
either in that language or in your L1. And we were really pushing that. And there was a lot of people in the audience, including Badi Alaufer, which is kind of one of the founders of our field and someone who's been really influential on me. Um, but she disagreed with us on that. And then in 2017, she wrote a paper in Modern Language Journal. Her co-author, I'm not sure if I can pronounce her name, was Aviad Levitsky, I believe. And they, they did not agree with us. They were saying that they believe that the multiple choice test is actually a more valid measure of uh, reading comprehension. And they were saying the reason for that is because if you show these options, it can kind of trigger meaning. And so what they did in their own paper was they gave a modified version of the vocabulary size test with no options. And they just asked students to write in the definitions. And then after they did that, they gave the vocabulary size test in its original form where they, they, uh, they answer the multiple choice options. And they asked them not to, to skip questions they didn't know the answer to, to mitigate guessing. Mm -hmm. And then they gave them a reading test and they correlated the, the reading test and the, uh, these two versions of vocabulary size test. And the correlation was almost identical. It was 0 0.9, I believe, for the recall test and 0 0.91 for the, uh, the vocabulary size test. And on the basis of that, they said that it looks like the correlation is higher for the original vocabulary size test. And based on their theory, they, they believe that, you know, confirmed what they were saying. So... I, I didn't really agree with their conclusion. Um, I was actually a reviewer for that paper, and I pointed out that the difference is not statistically significant between 0 0.9 and 0 0.91. Mm -hmm. And if you roll the dice again, it might be a little lower. Another issue was that the, the test specifications for the vocabulary size test say you should answer every item, even if you don't know the answer. And the, the reasoning for that was that there would be a slumdog millionaire effect where a low-level student might just happen to know uh, a lower frequency word. Mm -hmm. And really, I think that by having them skip the ones they didn't know and not looking at subconscious knowledge on that level or hypothesize subconscious knowledge on that level where you don't think you know it, but just try, they basically just had two versions of the same test and it probably wasn't that much different. So I wanted to find some way to, uh, test the statistical significance of those results, but it's tough because I've seen situations where, you know, you, you can have a correlation of 0 0.85 and a correlation of 0 0.89 or 0.9, and that seems quite different. But if your sample size is low, you're probably not going to see significance anyway. I mean, you see the same thing with means when you do t-test, right? Mm -hmm. So around that time, uh, Stuart McLean had his own data set, which is one we use in this paper. And he had created all those tests himself, and he had uh, tested students on the entire third 1,000 most frequent words in the English language as measured by the BNC. And he tested under four modalities, a yes-no test, a VST-type test, form recall, where they, they're given the Japanese or the L1, and they're told to produce the English, um, and then vice versa, where they see the English and they have to write the meaning. So it was a really remarkable data set in, in the sense that he had students test, you know, all 1,000 items, not a few items representative of the 1,000, but all 1,000, really 4,000 when you look at the four modalities. And he had also collected their reading scores on the TOEIC, uh, the reading section of the TOEIC test. So there was a way to really compare these correlations. But he only had 100 learners, which it really wasn't that different from, from Laufer's own study. But I was thinking, well, if you have a thousand items, you could split that up into 10 100 word tests, right? Mm -hmm. Or you could split it up into 50, you know, 20 50 word tests or what have you. But I knew about the concept of bootstrapping, whereas you basically scoop up a random number of samples and you work out the mean or whatever statistic you want to work out. Then you throw those samples back into the bucket and then you scoop out more. And so it's sampling with replacement. And you just do that over and over and over again. And then you can see a distribution of possible values. Okay. So, so we wanted to do that with correlations. And so it turned out that Stuart would be doing something similar to that um, for, for another project. And he had actually commissioned have pro, uh, code made in Excel that would automatically generate tests out of these items uh, for simulation purposes. So we took those simulations and we, we just kept on correlating them 
to the, uh, the, the TOEIC reading test, it might have been something like 4 million simulations in total. It, it really starts to add up after a while. And then based on that, we could see, well, you know, you could give one version of the VST and you might get this correlation and you could do with another 50 items and it could be this correlation over here. But on average, it's going to be around this correlation, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see the distribution, like what the outliers are, how far it can go out. And so we did that with uh, 40 item versions of a VST type test um, of, you know, uh, passive recognition. And then we did it with the 100 item. And what we found was consistently the, the meeting recall has a higher correlation to reading than the, uh, the you know, meaning recognition, passive recognition. And at the same time, since we had the other modalities, we could also look at the yes-no test, for example, and form recall. And we found that really the order was meaning recall had the, had the strongest correlation to reading, followed by form recall, followed by uh, passive recognition, and then finally, yes, no, which had uh, the lowest correlation consistently, despite high uh, internal consistency, as measured by Kronbach Alpha split half reliability statistics. All right, let me let me circle back and, and go over some of these um, these terms. Mm -hmm. So, the vocabulary knowledge scale. Mm -hmm. Can you first can you first give me a definition of what that is? Okay, the vocabulary knowledge scale is a different thing, but it does tie into what I've been talking about um, to an extent. Uh, the vocabulary knowledge scale was made by, I believe, Parabact and Wesh sometime in the mid to late 1990s. And they uh, hypothesized a um, sort of continuum of vocabulary knowledge. And so there, there are various levels to it. So for example, You've never seen a word. You just don't know it. You've seen it, but you don't really know what it means. Um, you've seen it before, and you think it means something. And you know this word, and you can provide a synonym or a translation. You can use the word in a sentence. And then perhaps another step, which they might have added on later on, was um, or proposed later on, was you can use the word with semantic appropriateness and grammatical accuracy in a sentence. And so the idea is that there are these levels of knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So one issue with the vocabulary knowledge scale is it kind of, I mean, it, it really depends whether this is a problem or not, depends on your outlook, but it, it mixes two versions of, uh, of knowledge. You know, on one hand, it's, it's basically a self-report where it's the student just reports, I think I've seen it. Um, most people would agree that I've seen it, but I don't know what it means. is isn't a very useful, you know, aspect of knowledge in and of itself. Um, despite the fact that it does work well psychometrically as a distinct thing and a distinct stage. And then another issue is that, you, you know, you're seeing the word, you're providing a definition, whereas on the, the far end of the scale, uh, it's uh, more productive. But what I found with um, another paper I did back in 2012 was the, the scale didn't have too much interpretability in terms of if you were at a given level on the scale, it was relatively difficult for me to predict what kind of word mastery you would have on another word, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to get into. We, we were using the rash partial credit model and so on. But what, what, what the relationship here is, is that Laufer back in 2004 had proposed a continuum of vocabulary strength in a similar manner. But her stages were different. Um, she was looking at... Um, the terms are a little bit confusing, and everybody uses a different term, but we were basically looking at uh, recall versus recognition and active versus passive. Mm -hmm. So with active and passive, we're looking at productive knowledge, which is your, your L1, your own language, your, your native language into the language you're studying, L1 to L2, and passive or receptive knowledge which is uh, from the language you're studying, the L2, into the L1. And so most people understand that distinction, right? Productive mm -hmm. versus receptive. But she made note of another dimension, which is uh, whether you're doing this recall of the knowledge from memory or if, you're, if it's recognition uh, selected from options, mm -hmm. okay. right? 
So when you look at those two things together, you wind up with four distinct modalities, which is active recall, which is um, you're given the word in your own language and you produce it in the L2 from memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, passive recall, which is you're given uh, the word in the, the second language and you produce the meaning in your own language from memory. But then you also have active recognition, which is where you, you, know, you have the word in, in your own language and you have to select the meaning from options. Mm-hmm in the L2 and then the same and vice versa with L2 to L1 for passive recognition. So really the, the final conclusion of our own paper was we agreed more with, with Laufer's theory in 2004 than we did with their theory today. I see. Because a really interesting aspect of her theory was that one basically a knowledge of the strongest form, the active recall would predict knowledge of all the other forms. So you can have a situation where, uh, you know, you see the word and you see the options and you didn't know it before. But when you see the options, you go, oh, that's it. I get it. I know this word now. And you can select it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you had just been given the meaning in your own language and you were told just on the spot, give me the English word or the L2 word, you could have done it. Right. Because that's a stronger form of knowledge. Mm -hmm. But the opposite is not true. If you know the word in active recall or meaning recall is another way to say the same thing or a similar thing, then you will almost certainly be able to do the multiple choice question. You get what I mean? Right. So our conclusion to our current paper was that the reason meaning recall is the strongest form is, yes, you could make a case for some aspects of the multiple choice format for for measuring some form of reading, perhaps, or some skill that's related to reading. But if you have meaning recall, you have that covered anyway, if you're using the continuum hypothesis. I see. Okay. Um, all right. And then there's, there's two other things that, that kind of come up in the, in the background or even, or even before, before the background. The vocabulary levels tests, um, which is you, you mark VLT, and then the vocabulary size test. Mm-hmm. Can you just give me a brief description of those two? and and how they they apply to your paper and, and how maybe they how you look at those as, as individual entities because i i gotta be honest, i'm not really familiar with vocabulary so much mm-hmm. so i got a little bit confused i know you were so before you were talking about meaning recognition which you found to be the third uh the third most correlated with reading proficiency you 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 associated that with the vst which is the vocabulary size test, right? The vocabulary size test, yeah. So what's the difference between, like, how does the vocabulary levels test um, fit into all this? Does it fit in? Um, did, I miss some, did I miss something? Or was it the main finding that with the meaning recognition and associated with the, the VST? Well, um, both tests were made or, or made with heavy contributions from Paul Nation who is basically the, the founding father of, uh, of, of L2 vocabulary as a subfield of SLA. Okay. And I believe the, the first vocabulary test he made, or at least the first one that really got noticed, was the vocabulary levels test. Um, and that had a slightly different uh, question format. So what it would do is it would list, it would have these sort of testlet sections and it would list uh, six words like amongst, cheap, distant, evil, safe, wherever. And then on the other side, on the right-hand side of that, it would give three definitions, no danger, of low cost, in, or into. And students would have to match those definitions with one of the, uh, you know, three of the six words, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a matching test, if that makes sense. Um, so it, it was unique in the sense that rather than each word being tested by its own set of distractors, you would have three words being tested together, if that makes sense. The, the other thing with it was it was a focus on levels. So you know, a major finding that, that Paul Nation uh, popularized was the idea that the 1,000 most common words in English are make up something like 80 to 85, 87% of all words used in text and, and spoken discourse, roughly, right? Mm-hmm. And so basically what he was saying is, well, let's focus in on these levels. The first 1,000 is most of the words. You know, the second 1,000 takes up another big chunk. 
you know, if you know the first 3000 words, you're going to be able to get through a lot of simple materials for, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. At the, you know, elementary school level or what have you and so on and so on. So he had organized that test to really focus on, you know, the first several levels. So one objection to the vocabulary levels test was a psychometric issue called dependencies. And what that means basically is that if you're measuring two or three words at the same time, um, how you do on one word could infect, could affect your likelihood of guessing the, the next one. Right. So it's a little bit messier in terms of the statistics and reliability of the test. Um, so I actually did a paper. That was actually my first major paper was on the vocabulary levels test and dependencies within it. I think back in 2011 and Tesla quarterly. Um, so there were a number that wasn't just me though. I mean, a number of people had made these criticisms and, um, another thing was since it focused in on just a few specific levels, it couldn't really give or even attempt to give an overall diagnosis of your, your overall vocabulary size in English. Mm -hmm. So a paper that came out, uh, the validation was done by David Begler in language testing, I believe in, in 2010. Um, and he did a, a rash validation of this vocabulary size test, which I believe was made by Paul Nation and perhaps some other people at his university, where they would look at the first 14 levels, which is pretty comprehensive. I mean, that makes up, you know, the sizable majority of, of text used and, you know, tokens used in any given text. And the way that that worked was for each level, for each 1,000 words, they would have 10 questions. Um, you know, so, you know, the 10, you know, the 1,000 most frequent words in English you might have in there, like go, things like that, do, you know, and you, you basically answer a question for each of those. And then the way that would work was, let's say you get five out of 10 right on the 1,000 word level they would assume you know 500 of 1,000 words because you got 50% on that. And then in the second level, let's say you get, I don't know, three out of 10. That means you know 300 of those, and then they'd add it up, and they tell you what your vocabulary size was. So does that answer your question about the difference between the two? Yeah, and so that means moving forward, you've, you've pretty much stuck with the VST, the vocabulary size test. Well, and I mean, the field has as a whole. I see. Okay. So that so, was sort of a beginning yeah. and then it transitioned to the VST and you referenced, you referenced the, the VLT as sort of, you know, leading to where you are now. Uh, I mean, sure. And where the field is now, I, I mean, see. even now things are starting to change, I think, but until very recently, the vocabulary size test was kind of the standard in our field for measuring vocabulary size. How is it changing now? Well, um, more and more there's, there's a feeling that, it doesn't estimate vocabulary size very well due to guessing effects. So, I mean, one thing I've looked at a lot in my own research career is that if you give a multiple choice test, inevitably you're going to get a baseline score of 2.5 out of 10, mm -hmm. no matter what it is, because there's four options. And this is especially true if the test specifications specifically tell people to take every question, to write to answer every question, whether they know it or not. Right, And so the problem with that is if you're giving a 10,000-word a version of this test and you, you're using that to estimate the vocabulary size of, for example, um, Japanese university students, you're going to proudly conclude, yes, uh, everyone knows at least 2,500 out of 10,000 words, but they can't not know 2,500 as an average. Well, you know, it could be a Russian test and they would get that. Well, then something you did mention, uh, with the advance of technology, it's going to open up people to be more creative with testing where, you know, these huge tests you're talking about were much easier to do with multiple choice, where now you can do, you can do other types of testing with apps and you can make templates where the, the computer can, can scan the, the right page, even when they have to produce with, you know, by writing the, the word out. So that, exactly. that's kind of more exciting for, for researchers in your field now, right? Exactly, exactly. And so I know that, uh, for example, Norbert Schmidt, he, he really seems to have the same opinion on this topic. And if I'm not mistaken, he's been doing some research with the British Council, and I think Lawrence Anthony, Owasa University, among some other people. Um, and they've been trying to 
you know, estimate vocabulary sizes of different groups of learners around the world. And my understanding is they used a, a format that was deliverable online that did not require multiple choice options, perhaps. And perhaps this is one of the reasons they, they took that route. Well, before we before we jump back into the paper, um, can you tell me a little bit of your, your background? Why why you decided to focus on vocabulary and what, what led you to be to be interested in this and then pursue it as a as a PhD? Um, it's a good question. It actually ties into uh, the university you work at now. Um, when I started, I, I, I got my master's degree from Temple University, Japan, while it was uh, they had a campus in Fukuoka. And while I was there, I met um, a lecturer at Kyushu Sangyo University, and I was hired to, to do some part time classes. And that lecturer was Peter Carter, which is was a student of uh, David Begler's. And at the time, David Begler was collecting data for what would become his rash validation of the vocabulary size test. Okay. And so um, he, uh, Peter asked me if I could give some of these vocabulary size tests to my students at Kyushu Sango University. Mm -hmm. So I, I did that, and it was very low-level learners. And... Um, I noticed that since it's a monolingual test, if you're testing the uh, the 1,000 most frequent words, then the descriptions, the, the 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 you know what I mean, the definitions of the words are also written in English. So you need to know those words too, and it's the same level. So I was wondering if that had any effect on scores. So um, with the encouragement of Peter, I actually did a paper where I, I made a, a bilingual version of it, and I compared it to the monolingual version. And I found for very low-level learners, um, it does make a difference on the 1,000-word level, but you need to be quite low for it to make a difference. And then with higher-level learners, you know, they just blow out the 1,000 section anyway, so it's a bit of a moot point. But that got, got my interest in it. And then later on, I was hired as a full-timer, and uh, I was asked if I wanted to do vocabulary testing at Kyushu Sangyo University for their own vocabulary program um, because I was already kind of studying that kind of thing. And so I went back to Temple and observed classes with J.D. Brown, who taught language testing there. And I got really, really interested in the statistics of it and so on. So as kind of an office job while I was there, I was working on vocabulary testing. But that was also kind of my research interest. So when I started my Ph.D., I was kind of doing the same thing. And so the things I was learning on the job um, to help around the office also helped me with my research and, and so on. Now you were you were drawn to the statistics aspect of this. It sounds like were you were you drawn to the to the to the testing or were you were you drawn to to the design of tests? I mean, were, I mean, I guess my question is: were you were you attracted to the outcome of tests or actually the construct of tests with with the statistics part of it? Well, I mean, I was an English major in college, and I had never really been you know mathematically oriented you know, in, in high school or in college at all. But, you know, I'd spent so much time in the humanities that I was just getting a little bit weary of philosophical discussions of what we thought, you know, things ought to be or what we, we thought the right answer ought to be. And I found in a lot of uh, journal articles, uh, much of the, the paper would just be someone making an argument for why they thought they were right. And then there'd be a little experiment at the end. And I just wanted a little bit more finality to what I was saying. I didn't just want to have an opinion and then kind of marshal the facts together to, to make that opinion. I wanted to learn what was really going on on the ground and see if my theories were correct or not. And so statistics really appealed, quantitative research really appealed to me for that reason. And I mean, I, I heard a phrase early on, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. <laughs> and I just found so many times in our field not just our field, I mean, it's prevailing across, you know, psychology and other fields as well, the social sciences generally, people become so convinced something is real, they talk about it as if it's a given that it is. And there often isn't such a good link between the tests we use and the things we're trying to measure. And so I got really interested in seeing, you know, am I measuring what I think I'm measuring here, you know? And so a really basic example of that is, well, this test tells me that my lowest, lowest level students know 4,000 words in English. Mm -hmm. But when I quiz them, they don't seem to know any of these except the most basic of them. 
So is this test really working? And that kind of thing really interested me. And then I, I started getting into like constructs, vocabulary knowledge, and the dimensionality of it using factor analysis and so on and so on. But I just I, I, I get a satisfaction out of doing a, uh, an experiment where once it's done, I really know what I have, whether it's what I expected or what I wanted or not. Now and I you, like the kind of the clarity of that. You you pursued um, like statistics knowledge online outside of your PhD program. Is I that, did. I, that's correct. So can you tell people what what you use to to help uh, improve your knowledge of statistics? Well, the uh, the sort of de facto department head uh, of you know our center at the time, Luke Fryer, uh, was really big on getting people to sort of improve their skills and learn how to do research well. Um, you know, like one, you were, you were saying that I'm very good at, you know, sort of helping people when they ask. And the reason is because that's how I was treated when I started the same job. Mm-hmm. And basically their thinking is, well, you know, we want to set you up not just for the next few years for a contract, but for your whole career. And so, yes, we can offer you a salary and some work experience. But what we're hoping we can do is kind of teach you how to do research and how to get going with your career. Um, so one thing he did was he really encouraged everybody to take online classes at uh, statistics.com. And um, at the time, I thought, well, I'm, I'm kind of beyond that now. You know, I studied on my own and so on. But they, you know, he made the case, you know, even I could stand to, to learn univariate statistics again. And so I took it from the very beginning. They have classes in univariate, bivariate, then you can move on to multivariate and so on. And I really got into it, and I wound up taking, you know, all those classes, and then moving on to uh, things like, what else did I take now? I mean, structural equation modeling, for example, uh, rash measurement with Mike Lineker, and I'm still doing it. I'm actually going to take another class this summer on logistic regression, and that's called Statistics.com. Yes, it's a, a little pricey, but you can get an academic discount. And depending on your institution, you may be able to have, have the class paid for so using how did you, your research budget. How did you how did you find that online class? I mean, this is a, a discussion I've I've had with a few other people on the podcast, especially with how COVID has moved things online. I actually did my master's completely online, and I really enjoyed it. Did you, do you do you have support from your teachers? Um, do, you, do you have some support from your teachers? I guess when when it's online, obviously you're, you're much more independent than in a classroom setting. How how was the design of the program? Uh, they have, I mean, it might have changed since the last one I took. It's been a while since I've taken one, but they 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 have a forum where the students introduce one another and can ask about the assignment. Um, you you get marked uh, every week, of course, and you get feedback that way. But what was really good at the time was that there were a number of lecturers all taking the course at the same time, and so we could ask each other. And really what I recommend is if you take an online class, take it with a friend or a colleague or somebody so you can kind of mm-hmm. lean on one another. And it also kind of, you know, if you're feeling like, oh, I just don't know if I can get this assignment done this week and you know your friend is doing it, that kind of pushes you to do it too. So I don't think you necessarily need to take these classes all alone. And it's just between you and whoever's on the forum on your computer. You know, you can find people in your real life to take it along with you. Well, all right. Speaking of that, I, I warned you before we started the podcast, I'd like to do sort of a mini stats class, if you don't mind, okay. um, for people that haven't take, taken statistics.com. So this is when you start getting into the meat of the paper, which is around page 12. Yeah. Uh-huh. So you, so your first uh, table, well, table four, means and standard deviations of Cronbach's alpha values by test type and test length. So can you... I think one of the good things about the podcast, which I really like, is sort of drawing out some some meanings just, uh, you know, by, by speaking about it. Um, can you just give sort of if you we're not going to spend too much time on each of these terms, but maybe a quick rundown of what 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 Cronbach's alpha is and uh, the standard, the mean and standard deviation. OK, uh, so the mean is the average value of something. Um, the standard deviation. So, I mean, most people are familiar with the basic idea of a bell curve or a normal distribution, right? Right. The standard deviation can help describe the, the distribution because it, how do I say this? Um, basically it can, depending on how wide the standard deviation is, the distribution will be wide. And if it's narrow, the distribution will be narrow. So it can kind of tell you something about the shape of your data, the standard deviation. 
Kronbach Alpha is an internal reliability statistic. Um, it, probably the simplest way to think about it is it represents the average correlation of the test to itself. So what I mean by that is let's say you take a test and you get, you know, it's out of 100, right? Mm -hmm. And you get a score of uh, 80. And let's say you rip that test in half and you just take the first 50 items and you got a score of 40 on that. And then you have another one and you got, you know, a score of 40 on that. And you correlate all those halves with one another, right? Mm -hmm. The Kronbach alpha will be basically the average correlation, split half correlation of all possible split half correlations. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting statistic in that respect. Um, the guy that made it on his deathbed told people to kind of stop using it. <laughs> I think but he told it, me that story. <laughs> yeah. It's, but nobody listened. They still cite it. He actually explained why in the paper. He said, most people don't know who I am and have never read the paper. They just read a paper that cited a paper that cited me that cited that and so on and so on. But nobody found the new paper. But I mean, it, it is a good rough rule of thumb. You know, I mean, you can find psychometrics journals where everyone's up in arms and they're like, well, what about the upper bound and so on? But I mean, it's, it's just a rough rule of thumb. I think it does have some value. All right. And then the next page, 13, um, you have figure one, Pearson's correlations of vocabulary tests to reading proficiency by test modality and test length. Mm -hmm. um, so Pearson, Pearson correlation, that is one of the more easier uh, findings you can have in, in statistics. Is, is that is that right? You see, you sure. To see I, I mean, the, the, the Pearson correlation is just kind of your standard correlation that everybody knows. You know, there there are other there are other correlations that are that are a little bit more ordinal and they just kind of make sure things advance roughly in lockstep with one another. Right? Is that is that a Spearman correlation? Yeah, yeah, the Spearman and so on. So it's a it's a little bit. What, what frequently happens with papers is you'll write correlation because you mean correlation. And the reviewer or the editor will go, well, hold on, hold on. Which one is it? And uh, almost invariably is Pearson. I see. Okay. You can, you can usually assume it's Pearson if it doesn't say. Yeah. Uh, what's, um, what's an ANOVA? An ANOVA uh, is an analysis of variance. Um, I won't get into the, the math behind it. But basically, it's, it's a t-test for multiple more than two groups. Okay. Is what it amounts to, you know. And the Tukey post hoc test? I've never heard of that before. Um, okay. So how do I say this? Um, mm. Because you have – all right. So for people that are reading the paper, this is when it starts – like page 13, you start describing differences in distributions of correlations between reading proficiency and modality. You have the figure one Pearson's correlation. You mentioned ANOVA. And then two key post hoc tests. And then you have table five, table six, table seven. And table six is when you're talking about post hoc for mm -hmm. an ANOVA and table seven post hoc tests and effect sizes for an ANOVA on mm -hmm. the bootstrap modality correlation. So for me as an outsider looking in, that's when I'm starting to get a bit confused. Okay, so let's say you have, I don't know, you got two tests, right? And you want to see if the the average between them differs. So you give them a t-test, right? Okay. And so you find one is a score of 50, one is a score of 60. The difference is statistically significant. With an ANOVA, you can look at, say, four tests together and get a, a significance value. So the difference between all of them is roughly, you know, statistically significant. Statistically significant. But the issue with that is although it gives you this global statistic of significance, it doesn't really tell you about the details, like specifically which two tests were distant from one another and which two were the same. So you might have a situation where, you know, some tests are very close to one another, but one test is much further. And so globally, you have a statistically significant difference, but that might not be the case for all possible pairs of tests. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So what the post hoc does is it actually gives what amounts to a little t-test between all the various pairs of tests. But the problem with that is that p-value basically um, signifies the odds something would have happened by chance, right? Okay. So if you got a p-value of 0 0.05, what that means is that roughly one out of 20 times that would have happened by chance, right? Okay. So let's say you do this huge... Uh, ANOVA, I don't know, like ANOVA, um, of 20 different pairs or what have you. 
and you go, okay, well, most of them weren't significant, but one of them was uh, significant, and the p-value is 0.05. Well, the problem is we would expect at least one of them to be significant anyway, based on that p-value. Okay. So what the what these sort of uh, post-hoc adjustments do is they kind of adjust for that chance, as I understand it. Now, were you using uh, like a statistical software? Which which one were you, was it? SP is it SPSS? Um, is that the big one? I don't use SPSS so much. Um, I like JMP, um, but the one I'd recommend your listeners is uh, JASP which is J-A-S-P, and I believe it stands for JASP is Awesome Statistical Program or something like that. Um, it come, it's, it's, a, it's like a free program made by, I think, researchers out of VU University in the Netherlands. Yeah, you've, you, you showed that to us, uh, the teachers at Die. It's really cool. Yeah, it's great. That, that's likely where I got it from, yeah. Now, okay, the bootstrapping approach, you define, if we're going back, uh, to the background, a robust statistical method which simulates many replications of a study from a single data set in order to elucidate better the relationship between vocabulary knowledge and reading proficiency. So so I guess that, that sort of summarizes that you're, you're doing all of these statistical tests. Um, where, where does this term bootstrapping come from? I, I, isn't that more like a... Is that like a hard work or military term? Where, where, how did this get, you know... Uh, associated with vocabulary or statistics? Um, it's a good question. I'm not really sure why they call it uh, bootstrapping, to be totally honest with you. Um, I thought you just made it up. <laughs> no, <laughs> I no, I didn't. Check. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it is kind of an odd name. Um, it, it's... Okay, actually, let me just look this up. The Bootstrap was published by Bradley Efren and Bootstrap Methods. Another look at the Jackknife, 1979. Doesn't say where he got the term either. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's really interesting. It's like, let's say you have... How do I say this? Let's say you're trying to calculate an average uh, gas bill in mm -hmm. Fukuoka City, for example. Mm -hmm. And so you you get gas bills for like 50 households in the city and some are high and some are low. Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're just looking at, you know, 10 gas bills, just as luck might have it, you might have got 10 of the more expensive ones. Right. And so the average is going to be too high um, or you might have 10 of the lower ones and even 50 might not really give you a good beat on on what the mean is, the average. But what you can do is you can kind of get around your relatively small sample size by just random, randomly sampling 10 of those 50, calculating the average, then throwing those 10 bills back in the pot, then scooping out another 10 bills, which may or may not include some of the 10 you already sampled, calculating the mean on that. And you just keep on doing that over and over again until you get an average of all the possible averages. And you can even graph it out. And what, what happens is, is that when you when you keep on making these averages, like let's say you just take all fifty bills, you're going to get some extremities, right? Like mm -hmm. when when you when you bell curve this out, when you make a histogram of it, you know you you could get you know a given bill which is going to be really high, but if you're sampling ten, they're kind of going to balance one another out. Like the the highest uh, bill in the lot can only appear once out of ten times, right? And so what happens is uh, when you average that out, you kind of smooth things out so it can't be too high or too low, and you get these kind of more stable estimates. And if you just keep on making these stable estimates, you start to get a distribution, and you can kind of see where they converge and where the mean of the mean is, if that makes sense. Well, and so just, uh, yeah. just, just to kind of summarize, basically you can take a small sample size, and you can get a more accurate bead on the mean doing it using this. And you can also kind of see a distribution of the means well i guess this brings me to the an important question for doing the podcast i think i mentioned to you before i'm i'm starting my phd and mm -hmm. the other person who's doing interviews has, has finished their phd and you brought up kind of something interesting where you had disagreed with somebody and then you 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 actually became a reviewer and you had this sort of you know dialogue through your journal articles w when did the transition uh, come between sort of someone who's learning about it and 
has some knowledge, but maybe not enough confidence to disagree with, for example, your, your advisor, you know, um, when did it come, when, when did you reach that point where you thought, you know what, I can disagree with somebody, um, or even if it was your advisor, right? Like th- that whole idea where it's kind of hard to disagree with your advisor while you're doing your PhD. And if we're going to extrapolate that to this person in your field, who's an experienced and published author, when did you reach that point where you're able to disagree and then sort of really enter that, uh, that community of, of, um, you know, published authors? Well, I can tell you about the the first time I got something published in in a a major journal. Um, It it was actually the vocabulary levels test paper, which we didn't talk. We we talked about the VLT, but we didn't talk about my paper too much on it. But I won't Mm -hmm. get into it too much. But no, sure. Go ahead. I I, I had a basic question about the VLT and about the probability of of getting a word correct um, based on knowing the other words in the testlet set. But I didn't know how to answer that question. Um, but as luck would have it, there was uh, an exchange, uh, a student from Harvard who was taking a year off to learn Japanese, and he was in Fukuoka. Oh, really? And he, and he heard my question, and he basically worked out a mathematical formula that kind of solved it. And um, he made a little program in C++ that could run simulations and stuff like that. And I thought it was really cool. So I thought, well, I'm going to send this to uh, a, a JALT special interest group newsletter. You know, I thought it was a cool little idea. And um, like so many other things, this came down to Luke Fryer, who was kind of, you know, at Sandai at the time, um, the same guy that pushed me to the SAT classes and go, this is too good for that. You need to send this to a major journal. Wow. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in it, but I thought after a while, well, why not? Right. I mean, I'll give it my, give it my best shot. I'll send it there. Uh, it might not get in, but they'll, they'll shoot it down. They'll explain why it's not getting in. I'll dust it off. I'll revise it. I'll go to the second best place and so on and so on. It'll be a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and then much to my surprise, they, they liked it. But what they said is, well, you're just kind of dutifully reporting what you guys did. But tell us what you really think. You know, what, what's the implication of all this? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I had felt a little too timid to do that. But, OK, if you're going to ask me, then this is what I think. And, you know, we, we wrote about that and so on. Um, and, and so really that, that's how a lot of papers I've done have worked out where I just, we, we just, you know, me and my co-authors, we just do the work and we report on what we found and the reviewers and, and the editor invariably say, well, tell us what you think. You know, I mean, this is interesting enough to get into this journal. So why don't you just assert your opinion on what you think it all means and what you recommend for the field as a result of what you found. And so they kind of coax it out of us that way. And then it, it just reached the point where I became more confident in my opinions, and I started asserting them. But even now, I mean, th- this paper that we're looking at today, the one with Stuart McLean and Aaron Batty, the original draft was much more timid. And it wasn't until they really asked us what we thought that we started writing the conclusions at the end about the strength of vocabulary, you know, knowledge continuums, and we believe this, and so on. So really, it's, it's, just, it's just part of the field. Like if you submit to a journal and they think your data is interesting, they're also going to be interested in what you think. When did you become a reviewer? Like you mentioned you had reviewed an author who you disagreed with. When, when did that happen? Um, the way it typically happens is you write a paper that somebody else cites. And so when a, an editor uh, sends a paper to review, when they're trying to figure out um, who should review it, they look at the citations. So let's say someone's got some new fangled statistical method and they're citing somebody um, who's used it in the past. If the editor doesn't know that much about it, they'll just ask that person to review your paper. Okay. So with a lot of these papers, the reason I would get asked to review is because they um, were citing me. So how do you, how, not always favorably either. How did you find that process? Um, I'm actually really uncomfortable. Uh, I, I like to have my papers reviewed. I really appreciate that process. Mm. Um, but I, I've, even right now, I'm not a part of the 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 Kyo here at Kusandai, the the editorial. Uh, I just feel really uncomfortable. Like um, I, I think it's just too complicated. People might be offended if I give them my real opinion or. I'm just don't, maybe I just don't really, I'm at that place now. I just don't really want to do it. Um, maybe, to, maybe because the, there's implications of people that I work with, or I don't, I think it's a really good process myself. I like to be reviewed. I like to get feedback. 
Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel in general about being a, a reviewer and uh, that, that process of, of taking a paper and, and reading it and giving feedback? What, how, how do you approach it? If I was just reviewing papers and giving them the thumbs up or the thumb down, um, I wouldn't be as comfortable with it or enjoy it as much. But I see reviewing as an opportunity to help people with their own work. And mm. so it's it's rare that I reject a paper. I mean, if it's just beyond, you know, I mean, there are papers where it's like, yeah, I just can't work with this. It's, but, you know, if, if I think there's anything of value there, I won't be, well, good, but not good enough. It, reject. You know, what I'll do <laughs> is I'll say, you know, well, I think you got a really good idea here. Um, but what I'd recommend you do is, is you try this and so on. And I'm not trying to pressure people into doing it my way, but I'm saying if I see a paper where it, it, in its current form, it should be rejected rather than just reject it. I'll try to think, well, how could it be accepted? You know, what could I do to help make the, get this accepted? And then I'll give my advice. And what my hope is that'll help make the paper better. And that's really the, the whole goal of it, you know? How, and so what, what I hope is people appreciate that. Although <laughs> we don't always appreciate what, what reviewers say about our papers, no matter how altruistic they think they're being. I mean, yeah, that's an issue. Well, how, I guess the other question is, is the time management. I think, I think a challenge for, for researchers in foreign countries or you know, not in their native language you have to balance this issue of, of studying Japanese and then like yourself, you're doing your own research, your own teaching, um, and then you're doing reviewing as well. What, what's, your, what's your process for, like, for example, if you have all these papers to review, but then you have your own research to do, like maybe like morning time is when you're, you're functioning at the, at the best. That's when I am. Like I would never want to read someone else's paper in the morning because I want to mm-hmm. spend it on my own writing. And then I think I start think I start doing too much reading and writing, and I think, oh, my Japanese is is I need to study that. How do you how do you how do you manage all all, all these things? Like, do you have a set process, or is this something you're you're constantly working on? There have been times where I've uh, declined to review something because I just thought I'm just too busy. I can't do this right now. Mm-hmm. But I find that it always helps me if I do do it. Because it, if you look at the review as this obligation that's a, that's a distraction from the other things you need to do, then it's going to feel like a big uh, burden on your time, intrusion on your time. But the reason they're sending it to you is because it's in your lane and it's about the kind of thing that you do or that you could potentially do. Mm-hmm. And so if you're reading other people's work and then when you're reading the, cite, the citations that they make so you can learn more about it, you're learning more about the field. And you're learning more about other people's perspectives. And so that's going to inform um, your own understanding of the field, right? So, is- I mean, I, like I, I had one review I did. It was something involving like lexical complexity. And it was, it was involved enough with what I do that it made sense they'd ask me to review it. I think men might be more in the statistical end. They wanted me or whatever. But, I, I mean, I learned a lot about lexical complexity that I hadn't known before because I had to do all this background reading in order to do the review. So I'm really glad I got a chance to do that, for example. So, I mean, yeah. But what's your process during the week? Like some people say they'll, they'll do two hours every morning of research time or they'll do the, like, for, do you have a set schedule where you're balancing your, your research and especially now with the, I I guess maybe, maybe it's changed with the COVID-19 like, mm-hmm. I'm sure you have a lot more time or maybe you don't, I'm not sure. But like when, during a, a regular, are you, are you the type of person that is most of your writing in the off months off, off from teaching or do you try to have a set schedule during the uh, week? I wish I had a good answer for you. I mean, a, a lot of this has changed along with my life circumstances. So, I mean, when I, when I really got started, it was before me and my wife had a kid. Right. And <laughs> so that made things much easier. I mean, those days are gone. And, right. um, I, you'll get, you'll get them back though. You'll get, you'll get, yeah. it back. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I hope so as much as I'm enjoying being with my daughter now, but I mean, depending on your, your life circumstances, you know, someone else's answer is going to be really different than mine. And I know my answer is a lot different than it, it was, you know, a few years ago. I mean, the only thing I can say is, you know, when, when I started my master's degree, 
um, I remember there was this like festival or, or party I wanted to go to and I couldn't do it because I had like a class on my master's and it was happening on, on Saturday morning or something like that. And then, then I was doing the statistics class online and invariably I'd wind up working all through my Sunday to get it done. And I remember coming into work on Saturday and Sunday and just feeling like it was a breakfast club or something like that. Like, what am I doing here on work <laughs> or school? And like, this is crazy. And I, I resented so much that I was doing work on my weekend, you know? Right. And, but once I got through that and I got to enjoy it enough that it didn't kill me to go to work on Sunday every now and then, um, I just started, I stopped seeing it like, you know, nine to five. Okay. After five, you know, it's time to go do my own thing and not think about this at all. And I started seeing it. It's just this big expanse of time and you just fill it however you need to fill it. Once I kind of shifted to that, it became a lot easier to do all this stuff. But I mean, if, if I was determined to get everything done by five o'clock on weekdays, I would, it would never happen. And I mean, you really have to like what you're doing enough that you're willing to kind of sacrifice your weekends that way. You, you can't just work all the time. You'll go crazy, right? Like you need to some, I had to consciously set aside, for me, it was more setting aside time to not work. Right. You know, like, okay, Saturday is family time, right? Or before, you know, before we had a, a, uh, our kid, you know, it's like, we're going to go out to restaurants or things like that, you know? Um, so really for me, it was more, my default was just working all the time and then setting aside enough time to give myself space rather than what, vice versa. What was it like after you finished your PhD? Like the, the only thing that I could kind of equate it to is I remember when I was in university and I would do a music recital and you'd prepare for like six months mm -hmm. and you'd have this big concert. And then there was this depression that would happen after like the post recital you know, depression. Did you, did you have that sort of depression or did you have this weird feeling after you finished the PhD or was I it, felt, were, were you I thrilled? felt like I, I had this albatross taken off my neck. <laughs> I mean, I, I just felt weighed down. I mean, like basically the whole time I, I was doing the PhD, no matter what I was doing, no matter how much fun I was having, all I could think about in the back of my mind is I really should be working on my PhD right now. Right. And that just governed my life for so long. And when it was gone and that weight was lifted off my shoulders, it was just unnerving how much free time I had. I mean, I didn't know what to do with it all. And it, like, I, should, I shouldn't be happy right now. I should be neurotic. I should be worrying. And what have I got to worry about? Nothing. You know? So it, it was really a, an adjustment not having my PhD to do anymore. And I mean, then I started a new job and I moved to a new city and I, you know, all kinds of adventures going on here. So that, that filled in the time again. But I mean, yeah, it was great getting all that free time back. And I had no depression about that. Well, what are you, what are you up to now? Are you, are you sort of, you know, pursuing the same, uh, line of research or you, you're, you're, you're doing other things as well? I am actually. So I've, I'm involved with like three different Kakenhi, uh Japanese government grants, research grants at the moment. Wow. So things are really going to pick up. Um, aside from this paper, I had another paper published with Stuart and Tim Steckel and some other people uh, a few um, back in late 2019. Uh, I have another paper with Stuart and another person in review at the moment which is probably going to get published. And then we have these three uh, grants we're all doing together. And so that'll be a whole new wave of research. Wow. Well, uh, the article was predicting L2 reading proficiency with modalities of vocabulary knowledge, a bootstrapping approach. And maybe just if we can just summarize the conclusion. So you had um, the four modalities and you found number one, meaning recall and going from English to Japanese. Number two, form recall, um, going from Japanese to English. Meaning recognition is number three, which is the the multiple choice or the VST style test. Right. And number four was the yes or no. Yes, um, that's right. And, and one thing I should add was one argument that's made is, okay, well, these yes, no tests where students just read the words and check whether they know it or not might not have as high a correlation, but you can test so many words at one time that it might be a, as good a predictor anyway. But we actually adjusted for time, controlled for time. And what we found is even when you consider how many more items they can take, yes, no still comes in last place. And so we really don't recommend using the yes, no checklist for predicting reading based on our results.
Well, that's great. I so we've hit an, an hour, and um, I don't want to take too much more of your time. So I I've put your uh, email address on the show notes if if anyone would like to contact you with with more questions. Is there anything else you'd like to to add to the interview? No, just to say I'm enjoying your podcast and keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate that. And again, thanks thanks for. <laughs> I'm serious. I was a bit embarrassed when I went back and looked at how many emails I've sent you. And that, doesn't even, that doesn't include all the times I would just wander over to your... I, I sometimes wonder, is that why he took the job? Because he doesn't have to worry about me wandering over to his desk? Because I like, go, oh God, here he comes another one, another question. No, I kind of miss it, actually. Because uh, where I'm working now, there's really nobody in the department that needs my help. So it's good to have, you know, have people come and ask a question every now and then. Uh, all right. So again, it's predicting L2 reading proficiency with modalities of vocabulary knowledge, a bootstrapping approach. And it's uh, Dr. Jeffrey Stewart. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Okay. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email, lostincitations at gmail.com. Please like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.